Chapter 6 of A Strange Manuscript Found in a Copper Cylinder. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jimmy Anderson. A Strange Manuscript Found in a Copper Cylinder by James DeMille. Chapter 6 The New World. How long I slept, I do not know. My sleep was profound, yet disturbed by troubled dreams, in which I lived over again all the eventful scenes of the past, and these were all intermingled in the wildest confusion. The cannibals beckoned to us from the peak, and we landed between the two volcanoes. There the body of the dead sailor received us, and afterward chased us to the boat. Then came snow and volcanic eruptions, and we drifted amid icebergs and molten lava until we entered an iron portal and plunged into darkness. Here there were vast swimming monsters and burning orbs of fire and thunderous cataracts falling from inconceivable heights, and the sweep of immeasurable tides and the circling of infinite whirlpools, while in my ears there rang the never-ending roar of remorseless waters that came after us, with all their waves and billows rolling upon us. It was a dream in which all the material terrors of the past were renewed, but these were all as nothing when compared with a certain deep underlying feeling that possessed my soul, a sense of loss irretrievable, an expectation of impending doom, a drear and imaginable danger. In the midst of this I awoke. It was with a sudden start, and I looked all around in speechless bewilderment. The first thing of which I was conscious was a great blaze of light, light so lately lost and supposed to be lost forever, but now filling all the universe, bright, brilliant, glowing, bringing hope and joy and gladness, with all the splendor of deep blue skies and the multitudinous laughter of ocean waves that danced and sparkled in the sun. I flung up my arms and laughed aloud. Then I burst into tears, and falling on my knees, I thanked the Almighty Ruler of the skies for this marvelous deliverance. Rising from my knees, I looked around, and once more amazement overwhelmed me. I saw a long line of mountains towering up to immeasurable heights, their summits covered with eternal ice and snow. There the sun blazed low in the sky, elevated but a few degrees above the mountain crests which gleamed in gold and purple under its fiery rays. The sun seemed enlarged to unusual dimensions, and the mountains ran away on every side like the segment of some infinite circle. At the base of the mountains lay a land all green with vegetation, where cultivated fields were visible, and vineyards and orchards and groves, together with forests of palm and all manner of trees of every variety of hue, which ran up the sides of the mountains till they reached the limits of vegetation and the regions of snow and ice. Here in all directions there were unmistakable signs of human life, the outlines of populous cities and busy towns and hamlets, roads winding far away along the plain or up the mountainsides, and mighty works of industry in the shape of massive structures, terrace slopes, long rows of arches, ponderous pyramids, and battlemented walls. From the land I turned to the sea. I saw before me an expanse of water intensely blue, an extent so vast that never before in all my ocean voyages had anything appeared at all comparable with it. Out at sea, wherever I had been, the water had always limited the view. 
The horizon had never seemed far away. Ships soon sank below it, and the visible surface of the earth was thus always contracted. But here, to my bewilderment, the horizon appeared to be removed to an immeasurable distance and raised high in the air, while the waters were prolonged endlessly. Starting from where I was, they went away to inconceivable distances, and the view before me seemed like a watery declivity reaching for a thousand miles till it approached the horizon far up in the sky. Nor was it any delusion of the senses that caused this unparalleled spectacle. I was familiar with the phenomena of the mirage, and knew well that there was nothing of that kind here, for the mirage always shows great surfaces of stillness, or a regular vibration, glassy tides and indistinct distances, but here everything was sharply defined in the clear atmosphere. The sky overhung a deep blue vault, the waves danced and sparkled in the sun, the waters rolled and foamed on every side, and the fresh breeze, as it blew over the ocean, brought with it such exhilarating influences that it acted upon me like some reviving cordial. From the works of nature I turned to those of man. These were visible everywhere, on the land, in cities and cultivated fields and mighty constructions, on the sea, in floating craft, which appeared wherever I turned my eyes, boats like those of fishermen, ships long and low, some like galleys, propelled by a hundred oars, others provided with one huge square sail which enabled them to run before the wind. They were unlike any ships which I had ever seen, for neither in the Mediterranean nor in Chinese waters were there any craft like these, and they reminded me rather of those ancient galleys which I had seen in pictures. I was lost in wonder as to where I was, and what land this could be to which I had been brought. I had not plunged into the interior of the earth, but I had been carried under the mountains, and had emerged again into the glad light of the sun. Could it be possible, I thought, that Agnew's hope had been realized, and that I had been carried into the warm regions of the South Pacific Ocean? Yet in the South Pacific there could be no place like this, no immeasurable expanse of waters, no horizon raised mountain high. It seemed like a vast, basin-shaped world, for all around me the surface appeared to rise, and I was in what looked like a depression. Yet I knew that the basin and the depression were an illusion, and that this appearance was due to the immense extent of level surface with the environment of lofty mountains. I had crossed the Antarctic Circle. I had been borne onward for an immense distance. Over all the known surface of the earth, no one had ever seen anything like this. There were but two places where such an immeasurable plain was possible, and those were at the flattened poles. Where I was, I now knew well. I had reached the Antarctic Pole. Here the earth was flat, an immense level with no roundness to lessen the reach of the horizon, but an almost even surface that gave an unimpeded view for hundreds of miles. The subterranean channel had rushed through the mountains and had carried me here. Here came all the waters of the northern ocean pouring into this vast polar sea, perhaps to issue forth from it by some similar passage. Here, then, was the South Pole, a world by itself, and how different from that terrible, that iron land on the other side of the mountains, not a world of ice and frost, but one of beauty and light, with a climate that was almost tropical in its warmth, and lands that were covered with the rank luxuriance of a teeming vegetable life. I had passed from that outer world to this inner one, 
and the passage was from death unto life, from agony and despair to sunlight and splendor and joy. Above all, in all around me, that which most impressed me now was the rich and superabundant life and a warmth of air which made me think of India. It was an amazing and an unaccountable thing, and I could only attribute it to the flattening of the poles, which brought the surface nearer to the supposed central fires of the earth, and therefore created a heat as great as that of the equatorial regions. Here I found a tropical climate, a land warmed not by the sun, but from the earth itself, or another cause might be found in the warm ocean currents. Whatever the true one might be, I was utterly unable to form a conjecture. But I had no time for such speculations as these. After the first emotions of wonder and admiration had somewhat subsided, I began to experience other sensations. I began to remember that I had eaten nothing for a length of time that I had no means of calculating, and to look around to see if there was any way of satisfying my hunger. The question arose now, what was to be done? After my recent terrible experience, I naturally shrank from again committing myself to the tender mercies of strange tribes. Yet further thought and examination showed me that the people of the strange land must be very different from those frightful savages on the other side of the mountains. Everywhere I beheld the manifest signs of cultivation and civilization. Still, I knew that even civilized people would not necessarily be any kinder than savages, and that I might be seized and flung into hopeless imprisonment or slavery. So I hesitated. Yet what could I do? My hunger was beginning to be insupportable. I had reached a place where I had to choose between starvation on the one hand, or a venture among these people on the other. To go back was impossible. Who could breast those waters in the tremendous subterranean channel, or force his way back through such appalling dangers. Or, if that were possible, who could ever hope to breast those mighty currents beyond, or work his way amid everlasting ice and immeasurable seas? No, return was impossible. I had been flung into this world of wonders, and here would be my home for the remainder of my days, though I could not now imagine whether those days would be passed in peace or in bitter slavery and sorrow. Yet the decision must be made, and the risk must be run. It must be so. I must land here, venture among these people, and trust in that providence which had hitherto sustained me. Having thus resolved at all hazards to try my fate, I rowed in toward the shore. Thus far I had seen galleys passing in small boats, but they had taken no notice of me, for the reason that they were too far away to perceive anything about me that differed from any other boat. But now, as I rowed, I noticed a galley coming down toward me. She seemed to be going in toward the shore at the very point at which I was aiming, and her course and mine must soon meet if I continued to row. After some hesitation, I concluded to make signals to her so as to attract attention. For, now that I had resolved to venture among the people here, I was anxious to end my suspense as soon as possible. So I continued rowing and gradually drew nearer. The galley was propelled by oars, of which there were fifty on either side. The stem was raised and covered in like a cabin. At length I ceased rowing and sat watching her. I soon saw that I was noticed, but this did not occur till the galley was close by me, so close indeed that I thought they would pass without perceiving me. I raised my hands, waved them, and gave a cry. The galley at once stopped, a boat was lowered, and some men descended and rowed toward me. They were men of strange appearance, 
very small in stature and slender in frame. Their hair was black and straight, their features were quite regular, and their general expression was one of great gentleness. I was surprised to notice that they kept their eyes almost closed, as though they were weak and troubled by the glare of the sun. With their half-closed eyes they blinked at me, and then one who appeared to be their chief spoke to me. I understood not a word, and then I answered him in English, which of course was equally unintelligible to him. I then made signs, pointing to the mountains, and endeavoring to make known to him that I had come from beyond them, that I had suffered shipwreck, that I had drifted here, and that I needed assistance. Of all this, it was quite evident that they understood nothing except the fact that I needed help. The moment that they comprehended this, they took me in tow and rowed me back to the galley. I found the galley to be about 150 feet in length. For about two-thirds of this length forward, it was open and filled with seats, where there were about a hundred rowers, who all looked like those that I had first seen, all being of small stature, slender frames, and moreover, all being apparently distressed by the sunlight. There was in all of them the same mild and gentle expression. In complexion and general outline of features, they were not unlike Arabs, but they were entirely destitute of that hardness and austerity which the latter have. They all had beards, which were dressed in a peculiar way in plates. Their costume varied. The rowers wore a coarse tunic with a girdle of rope. The officers wore tunics of fine cloth and very elegant mantles, richly embroidered and with borders of down. They all wore broad-brimmed hats, and the one who seemed to be chief had on his some golden ornaments. Here, once more, I tried to explain to them who I was. They looked at me, examining me all over, inspecting my gun, pistol, coat, trousers, boots, and hat, and talking all the time among themselves. They did not touch me, but merely showed the natural curiosity which is felt at the sight of a foreigner who has appeared unexpectedly. There was a scrupulous delicacy and a careful and even ceremonious politeness in their attitude toward me, which was at once amazing and delightful. All fear and anxiety had now left me. In the gentle manners and amiable faces of these people, I saw enough to assure me of kind treatment, and in my deep joy and gratitude for this, even my hunger was for a time forgotten. At length, the chief motioned to me to follow him. He led the way to the cabin, where, opening the door, he entered, and I followed, after which the others came in also, and then the door was shut. At first I could see nothing. There were no windows whatever, and only one or two slight crevices through which the light came. After a time, my eyes grew more accustomed to the darkness, and I could see that the cabin was a spacious compartment, adorned with rich hangings of some unknown material. There was a large table and seats, Taking me by the hand, the chief led me to this, where I seated myself, while the others remained standing. Then some of them went away, and soon returned with food and drink. The food was of different kinds, some tasting like goose, others like turkey, others like partridge. It was all the flesh of fowls, though judging from the slices before me, they must have been of great size. I wondered much at the behavior of the officers of the ship, who all, and the chief himself more than all, stood and waited upon me. But it was a new world, and I supposed that this must be the fashion. So I made no objection, but accepted the situation and ate with a thankful heart. As the first keenness of my appetite was satisfied, I had more leisure to make observations. 
I noticed that the eyes of my new friends no longer blinked. They were wide open, and so far as I could make them out, their faces were much improved. Weakness of eyes seemed common among these people, and therefore the officers had their cabin darkened, while the unfortunate rowers had to labor in the blazing sun. Such was my conclusion, and the fact reminded me of the miserable Fallahan of Egypt, who had ophthalmia from the blazing sun and burning sand. After the repast, they brought me water in a basin, and all stood around me. One held the basin, another a towel, another a flask, another took a sponge and proceeded to wash my face and hands. This was all strange to me, yet there was nothing left for me but submission. Then the chief, who had stood looking on with a smile on his face, took off his rich furred mantle and handed it to me. I was half inclined to refuse it, but was afraid of giving offense, so I accepted it, and he himself fastened it around my shoulders. The others seemed actually to envy the chief, as though he had gained some uncommon good fortune. Then they offered me various drinks, of which I tasted several kinds. Some were sweet waters of different flavors, others tasted like mild wine. One was a fermented drink, light, sweet, and very agreeable to the palate. I now wished to show my generous entertainers that I was grateful, so I raised my cup, bowed to all of them, particularly the chief, and drank their health. They all watched the ceremony with very sober faces, and I could not quite make out whether they took my meaning or not. They certainly did not look pleased, and it seemed to me as though they felt hurt at any expression of gratitude. So I concluded for the future to abstain from all such demonstrations. Yet with every moment, the manners of these people grew more bewildering. It was strange, indeed, for me to find myself so suddenly the center of interest and of generous intentions. For a moment, the thought occurred to me that they regarded me as some wonderful being with superior powers, and were trying to propitiate me by these services. Yet I soon saw that these services were not at all acts of propitiation. They looked rather like those loving and profuse attentions which a family showers down upon some dear one long absent, and at last returned. And with this my wonder grew greater than ever. The galley had long since resumed her progress. I heard the steady beat of the oars as they all moved in time, and at length the motion ceased. The chief then signed to me and went out. I followed, and the rest came after. And now as I emerged from the gloom of the cabin, I found myself once more in the glorious light of day, and saw that we had reached the land. The galley was hauled up alongside a stone quay, and on the shore there were buildings and walls and trees and people. The chief went ashore at once, and I accompanied him. We walked for some distance along a road with stone walls on either side, from behind which there arose trees that from a distance had looked like palms. I now found them to be giant ferns, arching overhead with their broad fan-like leaves and branches and dense masses, making the roadway quite dark in the shadow. Astonished as I was at the sight of these trees, I soon forgot them in a still more astonishing sight. For after going onward about a hundred paces I stopped, and found myself in a wide space where four crossroads met. Here there were three birds of gigantic stature. They had vast bodies, short legs, short necks, and seemed as large as an ordinary-sized ox. Their wings were short and evidently could not be used for flight. Their beaks were like that of a seagull. Each one had a man on his back and was harnessed to a car. The chief motioned to me to enter one of these cars. I did so, 
He followed, and there upon the driver started the bird, which set forth with long, rapid strides, at a pace fast as that of a trotting horse. So astonished was I that for some time I did not notice anything else, but at length, when my first feeling had subsided, I began to regard other objects. All the way the dense fern foliage arched overhead, throwing down deep shadows. They grew on either side in dense rows, but between their stalks I could see the country beyond, which lay all bright in the sunlight. Here were broad fields, all green with verdure. Farther away arose clumps of tree ferns. At every step of the way new vistas opened. Amid the verdure and the foliage were the roofs of structures that looked like pavilions, and more massive edifices with pyramidal roofs. Our road constantly ascended, and at length we came to a crossing. This was a wide terrace at the slope of the mountain. On the lower side was a row of massive stone edifices with pyramidal roofs, while on the upper there were portals which seemed to open into excavated caverns. Here, too, on either side arose the giant ferns, overarching and darkening the terrace with their deep shadow. From this point I looked back, and through the trunks of the tree ferns I could see fields and pavilions and the pyramidal roofs of massive edifices and broad, verdant slopes, while in the distance there were peeps of the boundless sea. We continued on our way without stopping, and passed several successive terraces like the first, with the same caverns on the upper side and massive edifices on the lower, until at last the ascent ended at the fifth terrace, and here we turned to the left." Now the view became more varied. The tree ferns arose on either side, arching overhead. On my right were the portals that opened into caverns. On my left, solid and massive houses, built of great blocks of stone with pyramidal roofs. As far as I could judge, I was in a city built on the slope of a mountain, with its streets formed thus of successive terraces and their connecting crossways one half its habitations consisting of caverns, while the other half were pavilions and massive stone structures. Few people, however, were to be seen. Occasionally, I saw one or two groping along with their eyes half shut, seeking the darkest shadows, and it seemed to me that this extraordinary race of men had some natural and universal peculiarity of eyesight which made them shun the sunlight and seek the darkness of caves and of dense, overshadowing foliage." At length we came to a place where the terrace ran back till it formed a semicircle against the mountain slope, when several vast portals appeared. Here there was a large space where the tree ferns grew in long lines crossing each other and making a denser shade than usual. On the lower side were several stone edifices of immense size, and in the middle of the place there arose a singular structure shaped like a half-pyramid with three sides sloping and the fourth perpendicular, flat on the top, which was approached by a flight of steps. We now went on until we reached the central portal of the range of caverns, and here we stopped. The chief got out and beckoned to me. I followed. He then led the way into the cavern, while I, full of wonder, walked behind him. End of chapter 6 Recording by Jimmy Anderson